Welcome to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Today we talked to Patrick Deneen about his argument that liberalism, liberalism in a profound philosophical sense, makes promises upon which it cannot deliver, why it is ultimately destructive of civil society, and what we can do about it. Well, let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, social entrepreneurs, historians, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. We also sprinkle in practical advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. My name is Jeremy Beer, and thanks for joining us. All right. Thanks for joining us. So happy to have with us today my friend Patrick Deneen, professor of political science and holder of the, hope I say this right, David A. Potenziani, Memorial Chair of Constitutional Studies at the University of Notre Dame. Patrick has written four books and edited three others, but the one that has everyone's attention at the moment has for the last two years is that which appeared from Yale University Press in 2018 under the title, Why Liberalism Failed. It has been reviewed everywhere. It has been debated everywhere. It has been celebrated in some places, and it has been deplored in at least as many other places. It is one of those brilliant books that has genuinely shaped the national conversation, uh, beyond the national conversation, I might add. So I urge you to buy it, not from Amazon. They have enough packages to deliver already, but buy it from your local bookseller or from Yale University Press. And uh, first, though, Let's have a little chat with Patrick about the book's thesis and what it means for American civil society and American philanthropy. Patrick, how are you? I'm doing well, friend. And, uh, you know, you should also let people know that you're more or less responsible for all of what you just described since you more or less gave me the title for the book. Well, no, <laughs> that's nice of you to say, but I gave you a much worse title for the book, uh, which was Why America Failed. And you uh, <laughs> wisely changed it to Why Liberalism Failed, Why America Failed. Uh, although, sadly, in the last few months, perhaps that title has become more apposite than we had hoped. It yeah, would. that's that's my next book. So thanks for that. <laughs> That'll be a good follow up. Um, it's a bit of a challenge to talk to you about this book and these ideas because you and I have discussed them so much. And I, I don't want to assume too much knowledge on the part of our listeners, assuming there are any. And maybe it'll just be our wives, although I doubt that Inga and Kara would waste their time listening to this. So um, I'm sure there'll be some others. Uh, But let me, let's just start from the beginning. I'm sure you ask this question every time, but people need to know, like, what do you mean by liberalism? I mean, we're not talking about Hillary Clinton here, right? Or what the general person in the street might mean by the term. Uh, What do you mean? And maybe how is it connected to what the average person would think liberalism means? Sure. Well, you know, I think we have to, we have, would start uh, with the word itself, and liberalism has something to do with liberty. It has something to do with the idea of freedom. And uh, really, I track this back um, several centuries. So it's a it's a big philosophical concept more than a kind of contemporary political label. And there was really a kind of sea change in thinking and in, in defining the idea of liberty. If you look at the sort of classical tradition, if you read Plato and Aristotle, I don't know why you'd be doing that, but let's just say you did. Or if you're familiar with um, a number of passages in the Bible, uh, St. Paul, uh, uh, Jesus, and several 
instances. Uh, all, of, all of those various authors in that, that long tradition of the West talks about freedom as a kind of condition of self-governance, as a condition of ruling over the base part of ourselves. So it's a kind of, it's a, it's a form of, of a kind of self-discipline. And so, um, you know, St. Paul can talk about being a slave to sin, which means in some ways we get to do what we want if you get to sin all that you want. Uh, but that's a condition of slavery, whereas to be free is to be free in Christ, is to be free in a condition of, of, of uh, you know, a condition that conforms to the Christian teachings. So uh, roughly in, the, you know, we could say, you know, 17th, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, you begin to see this kind of transformation of the definition of liberty in some ways, to its opposite uh, of what had been the case. Liberty comes to be defined as being able to do what you want. And so when, when early modern thinkers like uh, Thomas Hobbes or John Locke talk about the state of nature, they define the state of nature as the condition of freedom or the condition of liberty, which, is me- which means that we can do what we want. What what the you know what the ancients what the Christians would have said that's that's a condition of sin or that's a condition of, of of vice, but that becomes the definition of what freedom is, and that's the baseline of understanding of whether we're free or not. Now all, all those all those thinkers recognize that you have to create a system that doesn't allow us to act on that understanding of liberty to the fullest extent, because that would of course you know mean that I get to do whatever I want. Um, so for someone like Thomas Hobbes, this definition actually ends up in a kind of almost a totalitarian condition, right? That you have to have a ruler that constrains us from, from destroying each other. But liberalism is really kind of the effort to say we can sort of have, we can have it all. We can, we can, uh, we can live in an, in, in a kind of ordered society uh, under a government, but to the greatest extent possible, this government should be organized that we can enjoy that condition of liberty uh, with the fewest constraints possible. And so a liberal society is really one that orders our society to, the, to, um, uh, to arrange for the greatest possible extent of all of us being able to sort of enjoy or live under that condition of that modern understanding of liberty. So that's that's broadly what we could define liberalism and, as. And equal freedom is sort of the modern. Uh, yeah, yeah, a kind of equal liberty. Yeah, right. that's precisely right. What drove that change um, that you were talking about here with, with Hobbes and Locke being sort of the representatives, philosophical representatives of this change and the idea of freedom? Was it was it a denial that there was a base part of ourselves to be managed uh, and um, disciplined, uh, subjected to uh, you know reason uh, or or what, what? Or was it? Is this a Reformation sort of driven change? What? What's behind that? Yeah, I think you'd have to point to the Reformation as a as a playing an enormous role, right? Where the rejection of the idea that there should be any sort of religious authority uh, that should, in some ways, determine or establish what the you know what what the teachings are and that this would instead um devolve to the individual to define these things and what what sort of begins as a kind of theological theory uh ends up becoming a kind of political theory right and it bleeds into the political realm so so it's not a coincidence that all the thinkers i just mentioned are all thinkers that are really beginning to think about you could say almost the political applications of some of the logic of the protestant reformation so uh Liberalism uh, migrates from an understanding of uh, of it as meaning um, protecting freedom understood as self discipline uh, to a uh, freedom understood as being able to do whatever we want. Uh, so why does it fail? So it, uh, two questions actually. So one to make clear, like in your sense, 
we're essentially sort of all liberals now. Like we, there, most of us anyway are, maybe you want to qualify that. Um, and then in a nutshell, why is it unsustainable? Why does it fail? So, I mean, I think you just mentioned an important point for the, you know, you just, you, you talked about the everyday listener um, who might not immediately recognize what I'm talking about as liberalism in this. And so what I'm describing is really, we could sort of describe it as kind of the entire American political spectrum, at least until about, you know, five years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, that is to say, uh, people that we call conservatives and people that we call liberals are really both liberals uh, in, in by, by this definition. They really debate not over the what the object or aim of our political life should be. They actually both agree we should enjoy equal freedom. The big debate has been over the means that we achieve that end. And with uh, classical liberals, what we call conservatives, arguing that the best means of, 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 of achieving this form of liberty is to re- re- reduce the size of government and the scope of government to the greatest extent possible and allow the free action of individuals in the marketplace. So the argument being that the market is the realm of individual freedom. Whereas, you know, people we would think of as like Hillary Clinton and so forth, in some ways argue the opposite, right? They argue for a greater sphere of, of public uh, of public action, of, uh, of government action, uh, and uh, in particular to, to govern aspects of, of the market. But it's actually done in the same for the same aim and purpose. It's just the, the argument there is that people start on, you know, different points of the starting line in the race of life. They don't have, uh, they don't have the equal capacity to enjoy the benefits of liberty. So you have to sort of equalize, uh, where people are in some ways starting the race from and, and government becomes a kind of a means of doing that. And that's, that's been the, the predominant debate in the, you know, cer- certainly since the end of the, uh, of the, of, of World War II, um, if not throughout much of American history. And when I was writing this book, uh, this was before Trump was in an, you know, anything other than a, than a you know, a reality TV star. Um, this was before Brexit. Uh, these are these are arguments, as you know, I've been talking about for probably for several decades now, just developing them. And it took me, you know, it took me a long time to think them through and then a relatively quick uh, run to, to actually sit down and write the book. Uh, so the argument was that it was, wasn't that it failed because now we see Donald Trump and Brexit. The argument was that internally it had to fail uh, because this definition of liberalism could succeed as long as, let's say, the American polity or a liberal polity was not fully liberal. In other words, in, in which people were not defined by the greatest extent of individual freedom and liberty from other people and liberty from their circumstances. And, and I, you know, I would suggest this is actually why I rejected your title as enticing as it, as it was, because my view is that America has actually been in many ways praiseworthy and defensible precisely because it has never been fully liberal. Uh, it's always been better than its philosophy, to use a phrase from Tocqueville. Uh, but uh, but what has become evident to me, even before you know the current moment, was that we were becoming ever more, in a sense, the the realization of the of the theory. The right? logic we were actually- was working itself out more more and more yeah, fully yeah. over time. That that's your argument, right? That it sort of suborns and eats away at this cultural capital or a pre liberal logic that sort of has no public. No place in our public discourse is, is that right. a good way to put it. 
Yeah, that's an excellent way to put it. That it actually, you're, you're precisely right. That the kind of the object or aim of the regime, if I can put it that way, the kind of the the, the way of life, what we think about as our big C constitution, who we are as a people, eventually undermines a kind of inheritance that we didn't necessarily make, um, but we have enjoyed and has acted as a kind of counterbalance to the official philosophy of the regime. And this this would be, of course, things, you know, we would we'll probably talk about more, things like civil strong civil society, associations, uh, religion, religious practice, strength of churches, families, communities, and so forth. The kind of thick fabric that in some ways, you know, is the is the embodiment of the older teaching that liberty is a kind of self-rule, right? What do you what do you learn in families? What do you learn in your churches? What do you learn in your communities? Not to just do what you want. You have to learn how to sort of, you know, sort of uh, circumscribe your own sense of self uh, in, in company uh, with, with other human beings. And to the extent that we have conformed ourselves to this other definition of liberty, we've actually now created a condition in which liberalism is no longer able to sustain itself. The, the problem with all those things you just mentioned, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but from the standpoint of liberalism, is that they um, inherently produce inequality or you can't enjoy them equally. Like private associations are particular. Not everybody can belong <laughs> to the lodge or to um, – everybody belongs to the same parish or, or, or church or certainly not family, which is um, a key sort of driver of inequality, right, in so many ways. Um, is that why – is this sort of a tension point between liberalism and um, civil society? There is absolutely no doubt uh, that all of those things I just mentioned are not only constraints on liberty, uh, on, on equality, uh, or let's say they, they're, um, uh, they result in certain kinds of inequalities. Right. We can look at family life and the longstanding accusation, especially from feminists, on you know the kind of the thraldom of family life. Or many people who've grown up in religious traditions and said, you know, I never asked to be in this religion, and it, it you know, it's, it, it uh, um, you know, stunted my my life to be raised in that religious tradition, and so forth. Uh, and of course, you know, even voluntary associations have to draw their boundaries somewhere. So you're absolutely right that uh, that um, there's. Uh, there's always going to be something of a kind of compromise that has to be drawn in, let's say, a regime that's officially liberal, but in which you have a, a dedication to a strong civil society. And again, if you want to see a discussion of this tension, I can only recommend that you spend some time reading Alexis de Tocqueville, who who understood this. And he understood that the logic of American liberalism would be to hollow out those those forms of life that he saw as essential uh, to American democracy, but which he recognized we're going to we're going to rub up against the logic of the regime. But here's here's the here's the real sticking point, and here's the real. This is why liberalism fails in, in essence, um, because what you just described is that in order to liberate people from what we might under liberalism's definition, what we what we might describe as arbitrary forms of membership. Right? So we, we might think, you know, joining. Unchosen form yeah, of membership. Unchosen, right? Unchosen forms of membership or definition. And we can think of those as, you know, okay, you, know, you don't have to join an association. You should be able to leave it if you want. Um, you shouldn't be forced to marry someone you don't want to marry. And, you know, you could say though, all those things relatively peacefully we, we resolved. Um, 
But what happens with um, family life and with religion and with um, gender? You know, one's, one's culture, and of course, gender. Right? Uh, one we could say these these really much harder nuts to crack in a sense uh, of, uh, that that really go to the essence or core of what it is to be a human being. And here, in order to equalize us, in order to make us genuinely equal in the way that equal liberty would demand, you end up having to sacrifice liberty. You end up having, right, you actually have to now increase and enlarge the role of the state now to actively sort of insert itself into those, uh, into those parts of our society in order to ensure that everyone is being treated equally. And so many of the battles that we're seeing right now that are really dividing this country, right, the, the, these kind of not just culture wars, but I mean, at the, at the point of being genuine close to being a civil war, it's being called a cold civil war, but it seems to be getting hotter every day. I think it really has to do with this logic of liberalism now having to step into those spheres of life that people have always thought this is where the state has to, right the the limits of the state have to be drawn firmly and without without any doubt and so we see now today for example scholars at Harvard Law School arguing that for example that uh, homeschooling should be disallowed uh, because it results in unequal outcomes. Ironically, right? and this, all Harvard students are being homeschooled right now, I believe. <laughs> that's, well, that's, uh, if, if they're, at least they're being schooled at home. <laughs> they're being taught by those kinds that's of professors. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we end up in this kind of um, paradoxical condition in which the realization of liberalism requires its opposite. And yeah. when we talk today about illiberal liberalism, I think we're seeing the fruits of this logic of liberalism that I've been describing. So are we seeing now then, uh, I, I remember earlier on when you were adumbrating this thesis, maybe eight, 10 years ago, there were a lot of questions always like, well, what, what would come next? What, what's the alternative? What would come after? Um, and it was a harder question to answer, it seems like, than it might be now when I saw somebody the other day on Twitter say that uh, woke capitalism plus managed democracy is the is the next is a good way to describe the order that seems to be aborting like maybe here and in China like maybe there's sort of a convergence going on uh, in, in west and east uh, is that is that fair is that what do you think of that idea yeah I, so what's what's hard to answer about that question is we just don't know yeah, right right. Uh, we don't know in the same way that authors like Hobbes and Locke didn't know what uh, whether liberalism would ever uh, would ever get launched in some ways. Uh, and, and I think right now uh, we're actually in a moment where uh, we're we're in a really active debate, uh, not over whether we should be progressive liberals or conservative liberals, um, but whether in some ways what what the regime should look like um, sort of after liberalism. So it, it's, it's a, uh, you know, the, 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 it's, you're right that it seems that one real possibility and where a lot of the power and wealth uh, and in some ways the logic of the liberal regime seems to be going is what you just described, a kind of, um, you know, woke capitalism, you know, and, and the pandemic is only, you know, has only increased the centralization and power of these relatively small number of very, very large, powerful, influential companies, uh, while seeing a decimation of, of small businesses. Uh, and at the same time, you know, we call what we call democracy, which is in effect really a kind of centralized managerial state that's largely run by bureaucrats with a few spokesmen that we we 
be elect, uh, but but which is really largely an administrative state. And, and that's really, I think, one of the stories of the Trump years has been, it's been instructive to see how you know, this call, often called the deep state, but the state will do what the state does regardless of who we elect to run the state. And uh, that's been, whatever you think of Trump, uh, anyone who calls himself a Democrat should be worried about what we have what we have seen. So, uh, so with all that said, it seems to me what we're also seeing is um, some signs of life from a tradition that I mean, it's um, I, I would call it conservative. Uh, it's sometimes called populist. I think populism is the is the the way in which it it manifests itself at this moment politically. But I would say that in some ways it's conservative, and it's conservative in the following way: that it's it's generally it's not uh, it's not an elite driven. Um, it's not an elite-driven political movement. Uh, it, it, it can be co-opted by elites and, and dangerously by demagogues, and that's that's a deep concern. But its energy comes from deep discontents from a kind of you know a middle to a lower middle class electorate, and this is this is transnational. This is uh, occurring in Europe. It's occurring in the, in the U.S. It's occurring in South America. And it is a rebellion against this rule by this managed dem- democracy and this woke capitalism. And it's it's a kind of it, it harkens back to kind of nineteenth century British thought um, in response to the Industrial Revolution, and it's had various other articulations. I mean, we're both fans of Christopher Lash, who was one of its most potent uh, analysts in the, uh, in the last several decades. But it's a demand by ordinary people for relative stability. In their lives, so a kind of constraint on the marketplace, not for the sake of equality per se. It's not a demand. It's not really born of Marxism as such. It's a demand for the preservation of the institutions that ordinary people seem to really care about. So it is the family and the community and the church and so forth. And so it's those institutions and those ways of life that generally have been undermined or certainly weakened as a consequence of what. I was describing earlier. So, uh, you know, it seems to me we're in a very live moment. This election will say some things, but it won't be the end of this debate. Um, And I think the fixation on Donald Trump has really, um, has distracted people from the deeper underlying currents here. Uh, It's not all about Trump. It's really about, I think, a kind of a debate between sort of a kind of old-fashioned, almost 19th century Disraelian conservatism uh, against uh, the kind of uh, you know, what you were just describing, the kind of woke capitalism, managerial democracy. And I, I think this is going to be the live debate that's going to be with us for some time. And on the side of the woke capitalists and the managerial Democrats, you have most of the money, you have most of the, the institutions, the cultural institutions, the educational institutions, you have almost everything you would want to win the debate. What they don't have are the votes. Uh, and so it's going to be very interesting uh, to see uh, in the you know in the you know, next decade or so uh, where this goes. It really is. Uh, we'll come, let's come right back and talk a little bit more about that practically, how this might play out, and what we can do uh, uh, to uh, resist further erosion of civil society at the hands of liberalism, or maybe even at the hands of populism. I'll talk to you about that in uh, just a second. Time for a practicality. 
And uh, today we have Cecilia Deem, my colleague here at American Philanthropic. How are you doing, Cecilia? Awesome. Thanks. Cecilia is a senior consultant with us, uh, came to us from the Philanthropy Roundtable, and works, obviously, with a bunch of clients on um, a lot of major gifts. And you're going to give us a little tip today on emailing your major donors. What do you think? Is exactly right. Um, so I think one of the one of the most common things that people that I hear from my clients um, is, oh, well, we just don't have time to send personalized emails. And I think I think what this is stemming from is you know that pressure that you feel as a fundraiser uh, for every email you send to be extremely informative and formal. And well proofread and perfect in every possible way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, operating, of course, on the false assumption that all of your emails are being <laughs> read um, rather than just scanned or skimmed or not to mention as unread. That uh, we actually want formal emails more than we want informal emails. Right. Exactly. I think that's something that's changed a lot in the past fifteen or twenty years too, since the advent of email. Um, but yeah. So so my. Something that I did back when I was fundraising, um, one of the hacks that I used and found pretty helpful um, is to take the emails that are being sent out by your marketing team. You know, they're coming from, quote unquote, the president of the organization or whoever else. Maybe they're, you know, literally coming from info at orgname.com or maybe they're coming from, you know, president at org.com. But um, to take those, those mass emails that go out and then just forward them with one personal sentence to your top donors. It could be five. It could be 10. I think that sending it to one donor is better than not doing this at all. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think the key here is also that it's hyper personal, yeah. you know, like, Hey John, hope you and Sandy are having a great time in Aspen. Um, right. want to make sure you saw this note from our board chair. Thanks so much for your generosity. That's helping us do this. Talk soon. Susie fundraiser. That is such an easy way to do it because people will tie themselves up in knots about whether their major donors should be getting or should not be getting these mass emails, as you say, yes. off from the comms department or the marketing department, take them off, you know, then, and then they never get back on. They don't hear about certain things because um, this is such an easy way to do it. Let them get the email and then you pile on. Uh, it's a great way to make your touches that day. Um, I love it. Yeah, that's exactly. And, and it also gets you around, as you're saying, um, it also gets you around that issue of, oh, well, we don't have the right lists in our database, which is a whole separate problem. <laughs> and one that I'm sure you will dedicate many issues of the podcast to later. Um, but yeah, you know, you find yourself in that situation. I think everyone experienced this during COVID where it's like, oh, no, we have to send an email and we have to communicate with our major donors but we don't have the ability to do it quickly. So this is, you know, perfect for those situations as well. It's a great hack. I love the forwarded email because it's um, like a bank shot. Like I didn't craft this email just for you. So there's not as much pressure. There's, you don't have to respond to it. I'm forwarding it to you. Um, and with just a little note, it just seems so nice and casual and informal. It takes a lot of the, it, there's no heat in that kind of communication. Great idea, Cecilia. I love it. Well, thank you. <laughs> All right. Thanks for being with us. Talk to you later. Talk to you later. We are.
are back with uh, Patrick Deneen, author of Why Liberalism Failed, professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. Um, Patrick, you were just talking about, uh, you seem to have some hope um, that populism is not just a, um, a fleeting phenomenon associated with Donald Trump, uh, but as a, as a global thing uh, happening now um, that poses a real challenge to liberalism. It is not itself a sort of another form of, of liberalism, although maybe you can you want to uh, qualify that. Uh, if, if all the power is on and money is on the other side, how can populists hope to um, – won't the votes just be taken away from them sooner or later, you know, if they keep voting the wrong way? Like how could they – how can they hope to, uh, to win? Absolutely right. I mean, we, we sort of laugh about having votes taken away from people, but I think that actually underlies one of the reasons why uh, we have this uh, you know, tendency in liberal regimes to call the opposition not democracy, but to call it populism. Right. This this automatically sort of delegitimizes uh, its standing uh, in the eyes of liberal society. You know what, what would otherwise be celebrated as you know sort of the people you know rising up uh, is actually now denounced as fascist and so forth. So I think it's a real danger that the one the one avenue uh, that the people have uh, is likely to be cut off in a liberal regime, and and that's sort of built into the system. Uh, but that said, uh, it's awfully difficult to do that for an extended period of time. Now, I, I, I'm of two minds about this, uh, Jeremy, because in the American tradition, we know there have been populist moments, and they have generally tended to be brief and generally thwarted. <laughs> so, so the record seems to be actually pretty dismal uh, on this front. Uh, but we're, you know, I, in some ways, if the thesis of my book is right, we're actually at this we're at this real genuine inflection point where. You know the the real threat is the, a kind of uh, a, a new kind of totalitarianism. I, I know that sounds you know alarmist, overwrought or something. But, yes. But, yeah, but you know I think if one of the definitions of totalitarianism is essentially more or less the state's capacity to govern a- every aspect of human life, including you know the family, including the churches and so forth, then we're we're really at that point where um, it's an open question. Uh, whether uh, whether there will some form of liberty will remain, so I I I, I would say the following that um, to the extent that populism remains populism, and I'm not just using it as the dismissive uh, sense. In other words, that it's driven largely by kind of discontents. It's likely to fail uh, because it will simply be an oppositional movement. That's why it's really essential right now to see that there's a need for a, a different kind of elite. And this is not just – often populists will talk about the elites and the problem with the elites. Well, the, the populists really need elites. They need, they need people who run things, who teach in colleges, who, uh, who, you know, who, who are willing to govern. I mean you know, imagine if we had a, a president who could run a competent government. Uh, the last few, four years, I would say. Right. It really matters to have the ability uh, to do these things. But you, you need a different set of, of elites. And today, of course, elites are formed largely, almost exclusively in the kind of liberal institutions. So there's, a, there's this kind of need for this sort of quick ramping up to, uh, to sort of produce and educate a, a different kind of elite whose emphasis will be not on the various blessings of liberty that liberalism gets, gives us, but on the virtues of stability, 
on the virtues of self-discipline, of virtue, of local communities, of civil society, uh, of religion. In other words, all the things that we're not talking about anymore in elite society. In fact, the things that are largely denigrated and rejected. Uh, and you're going to need a, 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 an elite, uh, some form of an elite that can give voice a, to a positive construction of what it is that would benefit the many. And without that, I think this this uh, incipient sort of populism around the globe is likely to fail. Uh, it will simply be denounced as reactionary. Whereas I think if you can actually give it a kind of a positive definition of what it actually is for uh, and really g- a genuine alternative that's attractive uh, and I think should genuinely move people to support it, then I, then I think it has some chance of being, let's say, a, a genuine realignment of our politics in which you might oscillate between these two new – kinds of parties, um, but in which the the parties would potentially check each other. Mm -hmm. Although uh, it strikes me that... um, I'm trying to be positive here, Jeremy. I appreciate that. I I wonder if the party of liberalism would recognize the legitimacy of of any other party. I mean, it sort of seems to be um, baked in that uh, nothing else is, is legitimate or should be tolerated. And therefore, like just participating in the two-party system with a party of populists, as you put it, uh, would be um, to cooperate with evil. It's interesting, though, because if you look at even what's happening with this election, it's really interesting. We, we talk about, I mean, going back many years, we would talk about the three-legged stool of conservatism. Right, so under Ronald Reagan, the uh, social conservatives were one leg, the libertarian economists were, this, were the other leg, and the kind of uh, uh, anti-communist hawks were the third leg. And if you look at what's happening in this election, where are the libertarians and the neocon hawks going? Right? They're, they're, they're joining the Democratic Party. So the Democratic Party is increasingly becoming the party of liberalism, uh, and the Republican Party is increasingly becoming, oddly enough, this kind of working class party that, to me, I'm, to my mind, increasingly resembles kind of the Democratic Party of the 1950s. Yeah, the party <laughs> that you knew growing up in uh, Connecticut, actually, yeah. right? Yeah, it's exactly right. You know, I find, I, you know, I, I always abhor the Republican Party. I would never vote Republican. I still have never voted Republican. <laughs> but I find it kind of interesting that I find, you know, if I'm going to lean in one direction or the other, it will be with a party where that tends to get the working class support. And uh, that's now uh, the, the Republican Party. So I, I, I think there's a possibility of this interesting realignment taking place. Uh, and uh, uh, it's, maybe it's a, a narrow window and maybe it's snuffed out uh, in the next four years. It's very possible. Um, but I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to hold for a little bit of hope and uh, the hopes that this argument I'm making, which will be my next book, uh, will actually uh, have a little bit of resonance. You know, one aspect – of the realignment that's interesting to me uh, is, and, and this is very germane to our conversation, is that up until four years ago, maybe up until just a couple of years ago, everybody talked about freedom if you're running for office. Freedom was one of those God words that everybody used. Um, liberty, somewhat less often, but also often used. Freedom, liberty, and freedom. You know, we'd kind of make fun of it and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it seems to have and it makes sense, of course, right? If we're all liberals that we're always talking about freedom and contending for for um, for uh, being sort of the people who will bring you more of it, but that seems to sort of almost dropped out of the political vocabulary today. You 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 almost rarely hear the word freedom used by uh, presidential candidates today, or maybe even down ballot from there. Um, you agree with that? Is that a, is that an actual trend? And if so, what does that portend? 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, in a way, I suppose, uh, you know, the, the Democratic Party is um, increasingly the party of micromanagement of um, of sort of every everyone's life, as well as, of course, you know, kind of and connected to this, what we were saying earlier, the kind of uh, you know, the, the, the deep desire now to equalize all things. You know, if you're familiar, I'm sure you're familiar with the great Hoosier writer, Kurt Vonnegut, and his great story, Harrison Bergeron, right? This is this is where the Democratic Party has become, uh, which is this you know, Vonnegut story of, of, of an American, which everyone will now be literally in every sense equal, including, you know, wearing weights if you're stronger than someone else or wearing a mask if you're more beautiful than someone else and this is this is kind of the direction we seem to be going in um so to talk about liberty in those circumstances probably isn't um isn't uh, <laughs> the the winning formula uh, but it, you're, you're right it, it has in so many ways dropped out of the republican playbook which is striking because under ronald reagan that yeah. was kind of the it was the totem <laughs> it was the incantation uh you know he would he would uh, reagan would would often invoke his favorite philosopher a line from his favorite philosopher. And it wasn't Edmund Burke. It was Thomas Paine. Uh, and Thomas Paine's line, I believe we have the power to remake the world. <laughs> this is this is the line of a revolutionary. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, the fact that that's dropped out of the Republican Party, I mean, it's probably because you know, I mean, it's not, not the word, obviously, on Trump's lips. But I think if you look at where the juice is right now, and the Republican Party with some of the younger senators, Josh Hawley is, comes to mind. There's a real interest in – Marco Rubio as well – exercising a kind of um, p- public authority over what they see as imbalances in the marketplace – what uh, Marco Rubio is called common good capitalism. So this is not, you know, this is not Ronald Reagan's playbook. Uh, so the the kind of, you know, a willingness to say that we need constraints on the marketplace as much as we need to have sort of constraints on the idea of, you know, sort of what, what individuals should be able to do whatever they want to do um, in more social conservative terms. That's That's a real sea change in the Republican Party as well. Another question for you. Why do why would people who are so committed to a regime of equal freedom talk so much about the word diversity? How, how does that dynamic work? Well, I've been teaching at uh, universities for a long time, uh, several different institutions, Princeton and Georgetown and Notre Dame. And that this language of diversity and multiculturalism, of course, has been, you know, just on everyone's lips. And and it's never actually meant what what those words actually mean. Right. Uh, multiculturalism didn't mean let us delve deeply into the multiplicity of the world's cultures and come to know them with a kind of depth, and therefore internal to those cultures understand. Uh, and perhaps even sympathize with those cultures. It was rather, let's all embrace the idea that we we transcend any particular culture, right? so that we none of us have a culture. We're just all sort of swim above any culture. That's what it is to be multicultural. Of course, diversity is uh, you know has uh, sort of replaced multiculturalism, but it operates in a kind of similar way, which is let's all agree on this project of equal liberty, and then by various Markers, which you know, of course emphasize racial and uh, gender diversity, we will all demonstrate our allegiance to these principles 
with the multiplicity of our various sort of <laughs> corporeal corporeal manifestations. Okay. <laughs> and so, so, so of course, the result is that, as we know, the universities have become places of, of complete unanimity and homogeneity, right, in which they will not brook any disagreement. My, 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 my thesis on this uh, is not popular on university campuses, um, but it's the following. It's the following that um, in the midst of this desire to create equal liberty, let's say to advance the um, agenda of equal liberty, there's, there's the consequence on the one hand of wanting to free people from these arbitrary or unchosen constraints of family, religion, background, where you come from, the culture you might have been born into. That becomes a major project. So on the one hand, you have this real emphasis upon freedom. But the object is to liberate people from any particular circumstance so that they can, in some ways, become the most successful, the most prominent, the most uh, um, visible in, in whatever field, whatever way of life they might choose. So it actually begins to kind of, uh, in many ways, correspond to the kind of, let's say, the, the, the capitalist ethos of, of classical liberalism. It's to liberate people in just the way that John Locke hoped would happen through the, through the accumulation of private property. So the real, the object and aim is to liberate people and sort of springboard the most talented, springboard the people most likely to succeed in a world in which all of these boundaries and barriers have fallen off. Again, the argument that Christopher Lash made in his great essay on the um, uh, the revolt of the elite that uh, this was the um, this this was the way in which you could create the sphere of freedom now. Uh, born out of these conditions of equal liberty that would, would would allow this very distinct new elite to emerge. And the places where this uh, winnowing happens, of course, the, old, the final places where this winnowing happens is in the universities. So these universities are places that emphasize their diversity through their commit, common commitment to equal liberty, but which are actually in the business deeply, systemically of winnowing of sifting the successful from the unsuccessful, right? Anyone who followed the recent scandal of the admissions uh, uh, manipulation, uh, uh, Lord Laughlin and so forth, knows exactly what's at stake with it, uh, with uh, admission to these institutions. So this this emphasis upon diversity and inclusion and all the buzzwords that you hear, what it seems to me to be doing is really acting as a kind of shroud. Uh, on what is actually a kind of deeply systemically kind of inegalitarian system, right? And we can see that, right? One of the reasons we're seeing this rebellion uh, from sort of the bottom up is precisely because the divide now that that uh, uh, that exists between those who are the economic winners and the social and cultural winners from those who are its losers, that divide is about as wide as it's ever been in American history. And we know that all of the various social and health pathologies that are also manifesting themselves if you're not a winner. So, so I, I think that there's a way in which the louder an institution is about its diversity and inclusion, and it's always the most elite schools that are the loudest about this, the more it's a kind of tell that this is a way that we're going to convince ourselves that there's only egalitarians here at Harvard and there's only you know inclusion here at Yale uh, when these, of course, are the most selective and uh, uh, the institutions that most distinguish the winners from the losers today. 
obviously a thriving civil society is where is something one would really want if one were really interested in diversity uh, and giving people opportunities to find uh, um, meaningful uh, identities or create meaningful identities or discover meaningful identities or whatever the right verb is there. Um, and so, yeah, it does seem so patently um, a shroud, as you put it, that I always think that I just must be missing something that there's, it has to be, um, certainly no one goes to work thinking they're doing, just pulling a con game or not many people are who, who talk about these words. They, they believe right. I, I think, something. Yeah. I think, I, I don't think, I mean, maybe there's some deep nefarious planner of all of this, but I think it's, I think it's a kind of deep self delusion of a ruling class that is conceptually committed to equality. Uh, but which, um, you know, you're probably not unlike the old oligarchy, right? The, or sorry, I should say the old aristocracy, right? The old aristocracy, you know, again, Christopher Lash writes about this in his essay, right? The old aristocracy practiced a form of noblesse oblige. Well, yeah, they did, and sometimes they didn't. Uh, but, uh, but at least, you know, they, they would tell themselves we're actually really good to these poor people because uh, we have some sense of duty to them. And what's so different from that? And what we see today at our colleges and universities, oh, we really care about all these people. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll put things on our CV so we can get into a good college. Um, but when it comes down to it, I know I'm going to live in this really nice neighborhood in the Upper West Side, uh, and I'm going to work on Wall Street. Uh, so I, I, I don't mean to be overly cynical, but honestly, when you teach at these kinds of institutions, the constant drumbeat of how inclusive and diverse we are. Uh, it's just, uh, it's just really hard to take. Maybe, maybe it's part of is I went to college. Um, I was not a upper class kid. Um, I went to college at Rutgers university. The, it's real name. It should be the university of New Jersey. Okay. Like I am. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a big public university in a, in a, in a, in a, in a state that was, um, you know, ethnically similar. Everyone was in some sense white, but ethnically Diverse, you know, a bunch of Italians and Polish and Irish and a lot of different Europeans. Um, and when I went to when I went to college there, uh, you know, I was the oddball because I grew up in Connecticut, and people would say where they were from at the beginning of class, and everyone would say a town in New Jersey, and I would say Connecticut. People would say, "Wow, you came from really far away." It was like the most parochial school you could imagine. And then my first teaching job is twenty minutes down the road at Princeton University. And there you'd go into a classroom, you ask students where they're from, they're from every state and every country in the world. This is like geographically, incredibly diverse geographically. But I would say that there was more diversity in your average classroom at Rutgers University, genuine diversity of people's experience, life experience, whether they were first generation college student, fifth generation, uh, you know, every possible imaginable cultural background. There was more diversity in that classroom of kids all from New Jersey than there was in a Princeton classroom, which was all upper middle class kids who basically had the same education and the same background. So I, I think there's something, there's there's a ways of understanding diversity um, that we certainly aren't seeing today on our college campuses. It, there does seem to be a good deal of bad conscience uh, involved in, in the whole, whole deal. Have you been um, have you been surprised by the reception of your book? Or um, naturally, a further question: What have you learned from those who have responded to it? Has there been a a single good repost or criticism that you thought I need to grapple more with that, or I I, I need to assimilate that some somewhat to my thesis? Well. I mean, so I guess, first of all, I, I was genuinely surprised and shocked. I, I 
I, over the years that I've been talking about themes in this book, I learned that it really agitated classical liberals, what we call conservatives. And that was the extent of what I would thought would be the interest in the book would be a kind of an internally uh, debate within right. sort of conservative circles. Um, so what shocked me is I, I think just the, the circumstances had changed in the country and suddenly everyone was in a panic that liberalism was, uh, you know, was in crisis. And so, you know, along with some of the reviews that I was grateful for, you know, like columns by uh, David Brooks and um, uh, Ross Stouth very early on in the New York times, uh, you know, I had, uh, you know, president Obama reading the book and, and praising the book, saying he disagreed with it, but he uh, nevertheless thought it was a valuable read. So, yeah, pretty so, high level reader. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. Well, it was. It was that was. I, it was very surprising, and that had a lot more to do with the changing political circumstances than what I thought the target audience would be. So that was, you know, I, I think as a writer, it's something you can only hope for is just to have that wide reception and interest in your arguments. And uh, until the virus, I was uh, I was pretty busy traveling around uh, talking about these things. So uh, I guess the virus is, is pretty bad, but, uh, you know, it's given me a little time to rest. <laughs> but uh, um, I guess, you know, the, the, the criticism that I, that I keep hearing uh, that in some ways I think is not entirely fair, but it's in some senses it's also it's uh, uh, necessary. Is that um, I didn't offer enough of a of a uh, outline of an alternative. Yeah, you have a template plan ready to go. Uh, yeah. yeah, and so yeah, the book is really more a kind of critique and diagnosis than it is the kind of this is what we need to do. Um, but you know that that always seemed to me to be. The topic of another book. It is. It's the harder topic in some ways to write, as we were just saying earlier. It's much harder to sort of propose an alternative, you know, political, philosophical, theological order uh, in uh, in three hundred pages or so. Um, but you know, one thing that people kept critiquing was that I just seemed to offer living locally, kind of a Benedict option kind of conclusion. And that was certainly one of the things I conclude the book with. And I guess that was, that was one thing that stuck with people is that I, I, I that was, that was meant to recommend like for people who want to know what to do right yeah. now in the absence of some other political order, my recommendation was, you know, you can start living in a way distinct from liberal society, strengthen the kinds of institutions and the ways of, of forming human communities. That seems to me we're, we're going to need, we're going to need it one way or the other. Uh, Either to survive this, you know, either this illiberal liberalism or the collapse of liberalism, but we're going to need to have um, kind of resilient communities uh, to fall back on, as well as to practice certain kinds of virtues that you just want to have as a human being. But I, but I also ended the book by saying, uh, you know, we're also going to need new new political philosophies. We're going to need new departures in thinking, and not just sort of retreading, you know. What we need is liberalism or we need communism or we need monarchy or something. I actually think we need to, to think about a genuine what's next. And that's that's really been I, – I, at least I'm, I'm trying to work on this a bit in this um, in a kind of follow-up book that I'm working on right now. I, I don't have a title yet, but at least it's tentatively called After Liberalism as the sort of placeholder. That's uh, – well, that leads me to the last question I wanted to ask you, and, it's, and you, I just want you to – I want to draw you out a little bit on what you were just saying about um, what, yeah, what does it mean? How does one go about trying to build a more resilient community or um, um, uh, 
more um, a community in which humans can thrive uh, more fully than they can under sort of the sort of desiccated landscape of liberalism. What are two or three things you would recommend that people really think about? Average people, not scholars or, or writers. Well, of course, you know, it's funny for you to ask me that, Jeremy, because that's that's a project you and I worked on for, you know, about a decade uh, with the, the website, the magazine uh, Front Porch Republic, which was how do we how do we build um, a way of life uh, in which we can live in places uh, in relative freedom in our families and in our communities to to be uh, people of virtue and people of responsibility to other you know, embedded concrete human beings, not abstract, like human uh, sort of social justice, but really concrete. How can we, uh, and, you know, that question um, is a question I continue to get, uh, uh, you know, every, every semester of every year from students who are facing graduation and who generally are, you know, who, who feel like they're trapped. You know, they often have a large amount of debt uh, or they have a lot of pressure to be successful and how are we define that. But they also know that that path is going to call for a certain number of compromises or even sacrifice of something that they also value, of a uh, kind of, of family, of community, of a sense of, uh, a sense of being rooted in a place um, the possibility of being remembered for something that you do. I mean, all of these things that I think we we treasure as a human being, but as a society, certainly in the elite institutions, we don't emphasize, we don't praise, we don't underscore these things. And so I view my job as simply giving permission to do some pretty obvious things, right? If, you know, if, um, if there's somewhere you'd like to live uh, where you can make a living uh, and um, – Put down some roots and have a family at you know not not a ridiculously old age uh, and raise kids while you can still run around and play ball with them, uh, which is some kind of something our our students at even plays like Notre Dame don't hear. Uh, that it is it is uh, that if you can give them that permission, right, they hear that from from an adult they they respect. They'll give it a they'll give it a fair shake, and they won't all do it, um, but. Uh, they'll give it a fair shake, and and many of them will do it. And I, I've actually been encouraged over the years. Uh, it, uh, I'm getting a, a nice, a nice group of people whom I've taught over the years who are settling no, you know, in, in no other place than here in Old South Bend, Indiana, uh, which you know would have been for many people would have been inconceivable for a graduate of Notre Dame to Completely live in South Bend. <laughs> right. So you know, it's a testimony to, you know, well, not entirely Mayor Pete, but Mayor Pete works in cooperation with Notre Dame. And it's become a much more livable city in lots of ways, you know, for reasons we would both recognize. It's becoming mixed use, walkable. Uh, they're using the river for uh, something other than just uh, uh, waste dumping. And uh, it's, a, it's a very pleasant, humane place to live. And you get to know your neighbors. And one of the things I tell my students is, you know, for, especially for those really, you know, as I was describing earlier, really talented, really ambitious people, where do you think you're going to make more of a difference? You know, is it going to be being, you know, a, uh, you know the, the, the legislative aid to this or that house member of the House of Representatives right. or potentially the mayor of South Bend? You know, of course, of course, maybe it's just a springboard to the presidency <laughs> as it turns out. <laughs> but um, I dare say, I think um, you probably, you know, in terms of the you know quality of life and things that one can do, you can do a lot if you're uh, a talented person in a, a mid-sized city like this that could really use that kind of talent. So, I, I my view is um, you can you can live 
very well. You can live virtuously. You can live rooted. Mm. Um, uh, but you have to do it consciously. Yeah. You know, you won't, it won't happen by default. And that's, uh, that's, that's to our shame, I think, that um, we don't have that more as a default, as a kind of quality of our civilization. Um, but if you can call it out as a conscious set of reflections and decisions, um, young people or really anyone of any age uh, will begin to think, you know, that actually is a good way of life. Patrick Deneen, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, you can find Patrick online at patrickjdeneen.com. And you're on Twitter, I know, at Patrick Deneen. Very easy. And you're fairly active on Twitter. Um, alas, alas, much to my, much to my lament. <laughs> thanks so much. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Great talking to Jeremy.